Our focus has been on the persecuted and the poor. And we really believe that this was of God's leading and direction for us to go with this focus in this year for the conference. Because we believe that many of our people have become aware now concerning the conditions of brothers and sisters around the world that they did not know about. At least the conditions were not known to them. The same thing was with poverty here in the Bahamas. And the Bible has a strong message concerning both areas. And that's why we brought in a representative from the voice of the martyrs. Because these folk are involved in ministering to the persecuted believers around the world. And I've had good reports from many individuals who said that their eyes were opened, that they were enlightened to what is going on around the world and caused us to pray more. And as a result of that, we here will be sure that during the year, we will be making known to you specific prayer requests of the persecuted church. Because... As Candy mentioned, it's not just something we want to do the conference and forget about it. We want to continue to, um, to make it practical. So we will be updating you on a regular basis concerning the persecuted church. As far as the poor in the Bahamas is concerned, that's our focus for 2010. And you'll be hearing more reports. You'll be seeing even visually uh, more of the conditions in the Bahamas that cry out for help of believers in Jesus Christ. It is really my determination, with the help of the Lord, to stir you up and to make you restless, as God has made me restless concerning our ministering to the poor. I want us to feel dissatisfied. I really do. Until we are convinced that we are, in fact, obeying the word of God when it comes to our responsibility to the poor. And so we'll be focusing on the scriptures today on that, in that area. So I want to begin our focus this morning on the poor by asking you a question. Your question is this. Why are you here on earth as a believer in Christ? What is your one overriding purpose for being left on earth after becoming a child of God, rather than being taken to heaven immediately. Ever thought of that? Now, I believe that the Bible is extremely clear regarding the answer to this all-important question. And so we're going to take a brief overview. So let's take a quick look at what the Scripture has to say in response to this question, why believers are here on earth. When it comes down to the bottom line, it really means, what is the purpose for my existence as a Christian? Let's look at what the Bible says, first of all, about what God the Father has to do with our salvation. God the Father's part in our salvation. We go to Ephesians chapter 1 for this in verse 3. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. What a fantastic passage. I hope you love the word of God. This passage of scripture is brimming with, with love and grace and wonderment here. God the Father has blessed us. He's chosen us. He's predestined us. For what purpose? That we should be to the praise of his glory. In other words, God the Father saved us to glorify him. Did you get that? Now what about God the Son? Hear the word of God again. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. These are some fantastic words here. In wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. I feel like preaching in this passage here. When it talks about Christ working with all things. And the fact that eventually he will reconcile all things under the Father. Not just people. All things. Creation. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to his purpose. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Would be to the praise of his glory. In other words. Jesus redeemed us. He now reveals his will to us, and he has given us an inheritance to the end that we should be what? To the praise of his glory. In other words, God the Son saved us to glorify him. God the Father saved us to glorify him. God the Son saved us to glorify him. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? Hear once again the word of God. Verse 13. In him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit sealed us. He has given us, in fact, he is the pledge or the guarantee of our promised inheritance that was earned by Jesus Christ. For what purpose? To the praise of his glory. In context, meaning to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ. Not himself, because Jesus Christ himself said that when the Comforter, when the Holy Spirit comes, he would not speak of himself, but of me, Jesus Christ. He came to glorify the Son. In other words, 
God the Spirit's part in salvation was done so the Son might be glorified. This means, therefore, that the work of the triune God in our salvation is all for the glory of the triune God. He said, boy, that's not new to me. That's not revelation to me. I hope it isn't. But the question is, is it making a difference in your life? The work of the triune God in our salvation is all for the glory of the triune God. This is also the answer to the question we asked earlier. Why are you here on earth as a believer in Christ? The answer is clear. We, you, are here on earth for one overarching purpose. And that is to glorify the triune God. If we fail to do this, our life is a waste of time and effort as far as eternity is concerned. I don't care how successful you may be in your marriage, in your business, or anything else. If you're not glorifying God in your life, your life is a waste. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in another place when he talks about why we've been born again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls. This is a powerful verse. I can never read this verse without shivering. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, Paul here is speaking of himself. That's why he was the kind of man he was. He was controlled by the love of Christ. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He was controlled by the love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this. That one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all. Now listen to these words. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do you believe that this Bible is the word of God? You know what this Bible says? That if we have new life from Christ, if we have been born again, if we really have become a new creation in Christ, that new creation was created for one purpose. And that is to live for the glory of God and not for ourselves. So you want to know if you're glorifying God today, ask this question. How much effort and time and money do I put in satisfying myself as compared to what I put in getting to know God better? Now, in keeping with our focus for the conference, we could paraphrase this passage in this way. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the glory of him who died and rose again on their behalf. I must stop here because I want to ask you to ask yourself right now in the presence of the Holy Spirit, am I living my life in this way as a Christian? Bow with me just for a few moments of meditation and I want you to ask yourself that question in the presence of the Spirit of God. Am I living my life as though it belongs only to God 
and I am to be living for his glory? Just ask themselves that question right now. Whatever God has spoken to you, you have to work with that in your own life towards him. But now, how do we do this? How do we live our life for God? How do we glorify God? Now, there are many answers to this. It's no secret as to what we need to do to glorify God. For instance, one of the ways of glorifying God is flee immorality. One of the ways you could glorify God is don't give your bodies to immorality, to fornication, and to adultery, and all that kinds of things. That's how you glorify God. The scripture tells you that. Glorify God in your bodies. But we want to focus on this, how to glorify God in conformity with our focus at the mission conference. How do we glorify the triune God in our life, which is not ours, but his? How do we fulfill our purpose as a child of God, the reason for our existence? Again, the answer is very simple, but it is profoundly simple. How do we glorify God in our lives? We do it the same way Jesus did. That sounds simplistic, doesn't it? We do it the same way Jesus did. Jesus is our model for fulfilling our purpose in life. He is our model for glorifying the triune God in our life. Listen to these wonderful words that Jesus prayed to his father on the eve of his crucifixion in John 17. The true Lord's Prayer. I read from verse 1. I want you to take a note of the words and the emphasis on glory and glorify. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the works which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. If it's one thing the Father and the Son and the Spirit are concerned with, it's glory, their glory. That's why God says, I am a jealous God and I will not share my glory with anyone. Notice how Jesus glorified the Father in verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Do you see that? He tells us exactly how he glorified the Father. We don't have to guess about it. Jesus glorified the Father by accomplishing the work the Father assigned him to do. In other words, he did what Daddy told him to do. Now, it is extremely informative here to see the reasons the Bible gives for Jesus coming to earth. Sometimes we think that the only reason Jesus came to earth was to die for the sin of mankind. Now, please listen carefully and be assured of this. He did come for that. 
All right? And that is perhaps one of the primary reasons. But that was not the only reason. And we sometimes forget that. But the Bible gives different reasons for Jesus coming to earth. Just let me look at a few of them. And there are many more. I just went through the scriptures randomly. Matthew 20 as well as Mark 10 says, Even as the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Luke 9, 56. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke 12. Now this is one you don't hear quoted too often. I am come to send fire on the earth. Luke 19, 10. Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 10, 10. I am come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Hebrews 10, 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to do thy will. How did he glorify the Father by doing what he was told to do? By carrying out the will of the Father. Listen to John 6. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. First John 3. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Maybe we need to emphasize that one a little bit more. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Luke 5.32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. John 18.37, listen to this one. To this end was I born. Now he's answering the question specifically, why was he born? To this end I was born. And for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Now to me, if it's one place he should have put there, I came to die for the sinners of the world, is right there. But he didn't put it in that fashion. He says, I came to bear witness of the truth. That's another message. Matthew 5, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. John 9, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. For judgment I came into this world. Hebrews 10. Then said I, lo, I come to do your will. So as we go through scripture, we can see all kinds of reasons. But most of the time we focus only on the fact that he came to die for sinners. I'm so glad he did that. Amen? Because if that was not true, I sure you would not be here today. In fact, I doubt if any of you will be here. But I'm just wondering if there's anyone here who has not yet accepted his redemptive work. The fact that he died in your place on Calvary's cross to take the punishment for your sin. He came to do that. Have you taken advantage of that? By accepting him by faith, saying that I am a sinner and I believe that Jesus died in my place and God raised him from the dead to validate the fact that he accepted his death on my behalf and I'm trusting in him and him alone as the basis of my salvation. He came to pay the penalty for your sin. But here is some reasons that we tend to neglect or disregard. And Jesus himself stated this one. It's found in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to preach deliverance to the captives. He has sent me to preach deliverance to recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. 
to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. When last have you heard anyone give that answer when they ask the question, why did Jesus Christ come to earth? To preach to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to heal the blind, to set at liberty those who are bruised, those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Friends, listen. Jesus clearly states that these are specific areas of ministry that the Father mandated him to fulfill. In other words, the only way he could say that he glorified the Father by accomplishing the things that he was sent to do is if he did these things. If he did not do these things, he would not have been able to say to the Father, I have accomplished the purpose for which you sent me. In other words, it was not just that he died for the sin of the world. But that message had to get out verbally and by the way we live. These were aspects of the Father's will as much as his coming to die on the cross. Now, this does not mean, please, and don't take this wrong, that they are the same equal as far as importance are concerned. I'm trying to emphasize that both are a part of the Father's will. To glorify the Father by doing what Jesus was assigned to do included accomplishing these ministries as well as his dying on the cross. Only he could accomplish the work on the cross. He was the only perfect sinless person. No one else could take part in our redemption when it comes to paying the price for it. Only Jesus Christ. But you see, that was not his soul ministry on earth. The rest He's left up to us. Look at those elements again. Poverty. Sorrow. Bondage. Healing. Oppression. These are all reasons why Jesus came to earth. To deliver people from these situations. These are all part of the Father's mandate to Jesus Christ. I want you to listen now to his mandate to us. As he prepares to be glorified by the Father, having glorified the Father by doing what he was assigned to do, he now is going to tell us how we can glorify him as well as the Father and the Spirit, the triune God. God is interested in his glory. And he has told us how to glorify him. Specifically. Notice what it says in John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Now notice these words. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Did you get that? The same mandate that was given to Christ by the Father is now passed on to the body of Christ to be completed. Jesus did his part. Now the body is to do its part.
For what purpose? To glorify the triune God. Jesus' mission becomes our mission. We are mandated to complete his ministry on earth. And we must do as he did. He went first to his own because that's where he stood up in the pulpit that day in his own hometown. He was rejected. But he still did what he was mandated to do. The same thing is true of us. When we seek to be Christ-like, we're going to be rejected as well. We're going to be opposed as well. But he did it nonetheless. So he began in his hometown. I believe that to a great extent we've neglected our hometown when it comes to these areas of ministry. Not totally, mind you, but to a great extent. It's time for us to preach deliverance to the poor in our community. Listen to some of the things the scripture says about poverty. And again, there's so much here, and we'll be hearing more about this as we go along. Because I believe it's important for us to see that we as a church and as individuals glorify the triune God by completing the ministry of Christ on earth, which includes, but not limited to, caring for the oppressed and the poor. This is the only way I believe that we can truly fulfill the fourth major objective for Calvary Bible Church, which we've done over. And let me just give it to you again. I want to tie it in to see the purpose for Calvary Bible Church should be the same purpose that Jesus Christ had. And is drawn from that, this objective four. And this is what we state. Our objective is to personally and corporately encounter unbelievers through meaningful evangelistic missions opportunities and passionate social outreach. They go together. That's why in every bag, at least you should have been there, we have a gospel. We have a tract that was handed out today. When we go back again, the more focus will be placed on dealing with these individuals spiritually from the Word of God. Jesus ministered to the poor. So must we. Just look at a few references from Scripture that God teaches us about concerning his concern for the poor. He says in Proverbs 14.20, The poor is hated even by his neighbor. But those who love the rich are many. Isn't that true? He who despises his neighbor sins. But happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 19.17 One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his good deed. Proverbs 21.13 He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Proverbs 22.2 The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Simply means we are all made in the image of God. We have the same worth and the same value before God. God does not value human beings according to what they have financially. He values them because of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Now here's some reasons for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that we don't usually hear about. 
You always like to talk Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of all these homosexuals and gay people and all of that. That's true, but that's not the whole truth. That's not all of it. Here's the rest of the story. Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. You notice how specific this is? This is the guilt. She and her daughters had her arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. Do you notice there's nothing said about homosexuality? Listen again. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. Now notice these words. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. No mention of homosexuality. Only arrogance and poverty that the people were not addressing who had it. They were all fed, they had the money, they had the means, but they did nothing. God says, that's the reason why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Now, I know that's going to be hard for some of you all to believe. Because you believe the other things so far. But that's the word. Listen to it. Read it yourself. Listen again to Zechariah. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan the stranger, or the poor. Now listen to Deuteronomy. If there is a poor man among you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. That's why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, according to Zechariah. Give generously to him, and do so without a grudging heart. That hurts, that one. Sometimes, you know, you drive down, you see these fellas come to the door of your car, and you're doing, and you, boy, what advice I should give him? Well, God says I should give him. I better give something. And you give, but you give it grudgingly. God wants to change our attitudes. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, because of this truth, I command you to be open-handed toward your brother and toward the poor and needy in your land. Now, I want you to notice this. The reference to the poor you will always have with you is usually interpreted to mean, don't be overly concerned with them, man. They're always around. You know, they're part of the landscape. That's just the way it is. Don't be bothered by them. You can always do something for them later on. That's how we look at that passage. But this passage is teaching us the opposite. The either is instead, because you will always have the poor with you, you should always be open-handed toward them. In other words, you should always be liberal. You should never be tight-fisted. Since you have opportunity to give to the poor who are always with you, then always have an open hand. When Jesus quoted this passage in Matthew 26, 11, he did so to emphasize that in contrast to the poor, whom they would always have an opportunity to help, he would not be around much longer for them to do anything good towards him. That's with his purpose. In other words, he's saying that 
When you have an opportunity to do something that does not usually come around, you buy it up. Now, how does that fit in here? I believe that God's point to us in Deuteronomy 15 is that believers are always to be willing to help the poor. Here are lots and lots of opportunities to do so. Don't allow them to pass you by. And I believe that God has given us an opportunity as a church in this year, 210, to reach out to the poor in our community. This is an opportunity. We must not let it slip by. And this is what Operation Mike is all about, to provide us with the opportunity of doing good for the poor while we can with what God provides for us, even to the point of sacrifice, if necessary. Again, Jesus is our example. Remember what it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, may become rich. Do you understand this, beloved, that spiritually speaking, we were of the poorest of the poor? We were spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, destitute in spirit. We had nothing spiritually, but Jesus, the King of glory, the heir to the entire universe, gave it all up so he could reach down into the poor life that you and I experienced because of our sin, and he made us rich. By his grace. God has given us an opportunity to demonstrate what it means to be Christ-like to the poor. Not only from a spiritual point of view, that's important and we're going to focus on that. But even on the social or the physical level. Fulfilling this aspect of Jesus' mandate to us has to do with proclaiming the gospel to the poor. And this enables us to fulfill our purpose and mandate and the mission of the church. Let me show you this diagram as I close. You know this diagram. Calvary Bible Church's purpose and mission to glorify the triune God by completing the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth, by evangelizing the lost, discipling believers toward Christ-likeness, by providing members with opportunities for personal encounter with the triune God through worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and passionate social outreach. When we do these things, God will be glorified. And what will the result be? True disciples. Disciples who are Christ-like in their life and in their ministry. May God help us to be true to our mandate and be true to the reason for our existence here. And that is to glorify God. And one way we can do that is by ministering to the poor. Pray with me, please. Take a few moments of quiet reflection. If God has spoken to you in any way, please make your commitment to him at this time. It's between you and he. Perhaps he's spoken to you concerning how you can give to help the poor in our community. Perhaps it's just by being ready to respond to needs that are made known to you. Perhaps responding to our going to that area again to share the gospel as we have open-air meetings, as we meet with the folk in that area to find out 
how we can best serve them and to help them to meet their own needs. Just be willing before God now and just say to him, my life is not my own, it is yours. And as you came to proclaim the gospel to the poor, so I too want to proclaim the gospel to the poor. I'm ready, Lord. Use me for your glory. And all of God's people said, Amen.